Welcome to the Assistant to the Physical Therapist podcast, where I cover current topics in my PTA program and break the information down into bite-sized pieces. I'm your host, Tim Ernie. Let's get ready to learn. Alright guys, you knew this was coming. Here is my disclaimer. This podcast is meant for educational purposes only. It is not a replacement of your program's curriculum, and though I try my best, I am human, which means the information given may not be 100% accurate. No guarantee is given. This podcast does not represent the view of my associated PTA program. Hey everybody, how's it going? This is the um, Assistant to the Physical Therapist podcast. Welcome back. It's been a while since we've been here. I've been real busy and I've kind of slacked on making some episodes, so I'm glad to be back at it. We have an exam coming up. As I'm sure you all know, we have two classes going on right now. We have the um, orthopedic type class where we look at the different areas of the body. Recently, we lo- we've looked at the hip, the knee, um, the foot and ankle, the SI joint and the lumbar spine. And we have an exam on that coming up this next week. So I thought it might be prevalent and wise to make an episode, not only for my benefit, but also for your benefit. So I hope you gain some value from this podcast and it helps you in your learning. Um, I like to use as many different avenues of learning as I can. So I'll go on YouTube. I'll listen to podcasts just to get my um, mind thinking in different ways from different perspectives. So definitely the lectures that Doug puts out on the hip and the ankle and the knee and everything, they have all been so great, but it's always nice to get some, um, different avenues. So that's what we're going for here today. We're going to talk about the hip. I'm going to make a series of episodes this weekend. The first one's on the hip. The next one's going to be on the knee and we'll see if I can get all the way to the SI joint. We don't know. But hopefully, they'll be there available for your use so that you can have a listen and be ready for the exam coming up. So here we go. Um, We're going to be looking at an orthopedic overview of the hip, its pathologies and treatments for the hip. So we'll get right into it. All right. First thing we're going to be looking at is the hip structure. So when we're looking at the hip structure, you know, we got the femur, we got the ilium, there's uh, with that whole... Um, hip ilium structure, you have the ilium, you have the ischium and the pubis, right? And then you have the muscles that surround it and you have the ligaments as well. And so we're going to look at the ligaments. We have three different main ligaments that go into the hip. All right. And normally ligaments are hard for me to remember the names of, but these ligaments, they form a capsule and they provide stability and they also prevent certain excessive motions. Um, So we'll look and you see that the three ligaments, they're named the iliofemoral, the pubofemoral, and the ischiofemoral ligaments. All right. Now, if you know the hip parts, if you know what the ilium is, if you know what the pubis is, and if you know what the ischium is, then you'll be able to remember all these um, because all it is is those three different parts and then femoral at the end of it. So it's iliofemoral, pubofemoral, ischiofemoral, right? So that should be easy to remember. Um, With that, they all limit excessive extension. 
that is what I want you to remember for these. The main takeaway is for the ligaments, they provide stability, they form that capsule, and they all limit extension, excessive extension of the hip. Okay, and they also, each one has its own specific function. They limit certain different motions, but as a whole, they all limit extension. So moving on from the, the ligaments, we have the labrum. A lot of... Uh, a lot of conditions can go with this labrum that we know of. We can think of labrum tears or femoral acetabular impingement. Um, but we're going to look at this, and the labrum is just fibrocartilage, and it's a ring of fibrocartilage in the acetabulum. And it deepens the socket, and it provides this suction um, to the hip joint, to that femoral head, so that that femoral head is suctioned in there, um, this helps with stability. Sometimes this thing can get damaged and we've, we've all heard that. So, um, that labrum is really important and it's just a ring like fibrocartilage in the acetabulum. Moving on, we got the osteokinematics of the joint. All right. So I'm going to go over this real quick because arthrokinematics and osteokinematics, they're very confusing sometimes. But when we're looking at the, the hip, you got to look at the joint. Don't try not to focus on the extremity, but focus more on the joint itself between the acetabulum and the femoral head. When you look at that, things become a little clearer. So for anybody who has a little bit of confusion on how the osteokinematics of this joint work in regards to the convex and concave rule, I will have one analogy for you guys, and hopefully this will be helpful. This is for the convex, okay? This is, how I want to this is how I want you to picture it. If you get a wooden block, okay, and you set that down on the table, and that wooden block, that square wooden block is laying on the table, and you try to tilt it and roll it over to the side, right, with just a roll, if you just roll it over, it will be one square width away from where it started because you rolled it over and pivoted on that one point on the square block. And so now it's not in the same place where it started. It rolled over to the side. And you can kind of picture that in your head, right? But if you were to roll that block and at the same time pull it backwards if you rolled it to the right and pulled it backwards then it would stay in the same spot but only because you roll uh, slid it backwards so that's how i kind of wanted you to picture that convex rule right there is because it's very similar when you're looking at that joint ball that femoral head it functions the same way as that wooden block except that that's a block and it's not round right? So think about it that way. And that tells you which way it's rolling and which way it has to slide. So for the femur, if you're going into flexion, it's rolling anteriorly. But in order for it to roll anteriorly and not impinge on something, that means it has to glide posteriorly, right? And you can picture that with a block. Think about that. If you're rolling the block forward, if you don't want it to, if you want it to stay in the same spot, you have to roll it backwards, slide it backwards at the same time, right? 
So that's just a little analogy for you. I'm going to move on from that because I think we all have that somewhat. Um, and I know this is not the best format to discuss it over. So then we got the musculature of the hip. Um, and I just want to touch on a few specific things here. So first, what two joint muscles are there in the hip? Think about that. You think about obvious one is the rectus femoris, right? That one goes from the um, ASIS down to the patello, uh, patella, patellar tendon. And then you got the gracilis actually as well. The gracilis crosses from the hip and goes all the way down to the inside of your tibia on the tibial tuberosity where that pizanserine tendon attachment side is. Then you also have your hamstrings, right? And those are the main two muscle or two joint muscles. Now, what are two joint muscles susceptible to? Strains and poles, right? They got with that tightness, you can be careful because they're stretched over a larger distance. They're more likely to be strained or pulled because of that stress on them. So we got to keep that into account. All right. So here's um, two takeaways I want to give you guys from the hip musculature. All right. For the hip extensors, often clinically, they present both tight and weak. Okay. The hip extensors, that includes the hamstrings and the glutes. Typically, they present both tight and weak, all right? That's one takeaway. If, if they have a cramp during a bridge, then that most likely means they have weak hamstrings or weak glutes, right? So quick quiz, how do you isolate the glute max in an exercise? Well, if you're thinking bend the knee, then you are correct. That is absolutely correct. You got to bend that knee, and that puts those hamstrings, I, I, I should remember this, on either active or passive insufficiency, um, but it, it kind of nulls their usefulness in that position when the knee is bent. So then you have the glute max contributing a lot more to that exercise. Next takeaway, the second takeaway, first one was that hip extensors often are both tight and weak, right? Present that way. Hip abductors, if weak, can lead to a lot of problems. Here we got, they can lead to patellofemoral impairments, ACL strain, sciatica, and TFL or IT band syndrome tightness, right? Now, a lot of these things you're like, okay, I, I kind of get it, but why? Why is that the case? If the hip abductors are weak, why is, why is there an ACL strain? Well, I want you to think about couple things. So ACL strain, if the hip abductors are weak, then that means what? What's happening there? The, uh, the hip is actually falling inward. It's doing some adduction. There's less stability. It's, it's not being stabilized by that hip abductor. So it's more likely to fall inward. And we know that when it falls inward, that increases knee stress and valgus, right? Knee valgus. And when that happens, you're more likely, because it's a, it's putting more strain on the lateral side, so you're more in, 
there's the instability there, right? So it leaves possibility for an ACL strain or injury. Next for sciatica. Now this is the weird one you don't normally think about. If the hip abductors are weak, why would you be more likely to get sciatica? Why would it lead to sciatica? Well, here's where you got it. What is the root cause of sciatica? Normally, it results um, from the piriformis being overused or irritated or tight. In this case, if your hip abductors are weak, if your gluteus medius is weak, then your body's going to compensate because your piriformis actually acts as an abductor in hip flexion. So if your hip is flexed, then your piriformis can act as a hip flexor. And if your gluteus medius is weak, and that means your piriformis is going to be like, all right, I'm going to take over because you're slacking here, glute. And it'll take over, and then it'll get overused, and it'll get tight, and it'll get tired, irritated, then you got sciatica, right? And you may think, well, how often do you do abduction in hip flexion, right? Like that, who does that? Well, that's a functional activity. Think how many functional activities you do that you have to go into hip flexion for. Sit to stand, squatting right? Going upstairs. All those involve hip flexion, actually, which is surprising. But when you go into hip flexion, your piriformis has the ability to act as an abductor. And if that glute meat is weak, then it will take over. And as you're walking up that stairs, the piriformis is going to try. It's going to try. It might not do that good of a job, but it's going to try to help stabilize and perform that function that the glute meat should. And then with the TFL or uh, IT band syndrome tightness, you know, the hip falling inward because you don't have that abduction pulling it back out. All right. So now we're going to look at some conditions, right? We're going to try to breeze through these because I, I have a feeling this is going to be a long episode, um, but I'm going to try to make it brief for you guys. And remember um, that if you need to take a break, feel free to do so. I'm here, but you don't have to. So first condition, dynamic valgus, all right? What is this? Well, this is when the knee falls in during running or jumping or any form of dynamic activity. Um, now, this obviously is not good for the body. It makes a lot of unneeded stress happen to that knee, um, puts a lot of stress on that knee and those structures around it, the ligaments. Typically, this is caused because of what? Why is this caused? Why, why does someone maybe have dynamic valgus in their knee? Well, yeah, think about what's pulling that knee out of valgus, right? What's pulling that knee into a neutral position? Well, you got the hip abductors that pull it from the hip being in uh adducted out to abduction right and then normally with knee valgus you have internal rotation of the hip so if you have weak hip external rotators and that the hip's going to fall right into internal rotation so our our goal for those two would probably be to strengthen the abductors and external rotators and you can do that you know with so many different ways clamshells um 
standing abduction side leg like side leg raises you know um all those things so moving on we got piriformis syndrome all right we just talked about dynamic valgus not really related but in one sense they is because they are because we uh talk, just talked about how you can your piriformis will act as an abductor and with dynamic valgus your abductors might be weak so now into the piriformis syndrome Typically, it's presented with radiating pain down the posterior leg. All right. This is typically because of a valgus collapse. And they're during functional activities, like we were just talking about. That piriformis is overworking. It's doing too much. This probably means you have weak glutes. You might have a weak gluteus medius. Um, some ways you can help this are a sciatic nerve flossing. We learned that in class not too long ago, where you're you're flossing that nerve in between all those muscles and bones and uh, fascia that you have in your body, and you're you're flossing it back and forth to provide some relief and get it moving, get it a little more mobile. And then you have some stretching and relaxing of the piriformis, um, as well as strengthening the glute mean. Now, real quick, we're about to jump into arthritis and hip pain and the like, um, but I want to make sure that one thing that Doug was pointing out to us is that we have to make sure it actually is hip pain. Sometimes patients will present and be like, uh, yeah, my hip hurts, but it's really more of their lumbar spine, or maybe it's their SI joint or especially concerning is visceral structures, you know, like organs and such. So we have to, we have to be aware of these things and look out for red flags, like a patient not responding to treatment. If a patient doesn't respond to a treatment for an extended period of time, and you think it should work, then you need to talk to the physical therapist and see if they need to reevaluate them or have them get sent to a doctor to be um, x-rayed or um, further investigate that pain because it could be in result of cancer or some form of disease that's not actually related to hip pain or musculoskeletal. So we got to make sure we're looking at that. All right, so here we go. Arthritis. I know we're kind of blowing through this, but I think we're we're going to be able to make it. Hip arthritis. Now, typically, we will do special tests to find this out. Normally, it happens unilaterally in an aging population. You you'll want to look at their medical history to see how active they are, because arthritis is actually due to two two different causes. The primary cause is aging. And the secondary cause is trauma. So if you have an older individual who also is very active and does a lot of high-intensity sports, because you do meet those types of people, then and their hips hurting on the anterior side, then they might have arthritis. That's a, that's a pretty indicative medical history. So like I said, where will they have pain? in the anterior groin area, right? Not, not in the side of the hip where that greater trochanter is um, or in the posterior aspect. That's, that's not common. What's common for arthritis is anterior hip pain right around the groin and thigh, right? Um, they typically will have stiffness after rest. They'll have limited range of motion because of pain, you know, or because of weakness or stiffness. Uh, the structure breakdown from the arthritis if it's severe. Um, and typically, their range of motion that's limited 
will be no more than 90 degrees of flexion in the hip. They won't be able to stand much more than that, as well as internal rotation less than 25. I believe Doug said, our professor Doug said that internal rotation was quite often the first limitation seen in arthritis, hip arthritis. Um, typically, these patients will also have an antalgic gait, which we know we've learned is a painful gait. So they're, they're compensating, they're limping. Now, this pain in the hip can also cause pain in the back and knee because of that limited motion they have, and particularly also limited extension. So they got limited hip flexion, they got limited internal rotation, and limited extension, right? And so because of this, they're compensating, and they're putting more stress on that lower back, and they're putting more stress on that knee. So what do we do? What do we do acutely, right? What do, what do we as the PTAs do for these patients? Well, first step is to bring down that pain. These patients are going to come in and their hips are going to be hurting. You got to make sure you bring down that pain so that they can move. You want to do that with ice, heat, um, different medicines might be prescribed by their doctor for that. You want to improve their joint range of motion. So you can do lots of range of motion, passive range of motion, active assisted range of motion. Find their pain-free areas and work within those areas and build from that, right? We want to have them do low impact uh, exercises. And we as PTAs can provide joint mobs for pain, right? We might need to um, have the PT provide the joint mobs for the further grades, but we can also provide the joint mobs with movement, right? And increase that movement, increase that hip flexion with that lateral distraction, getting that away from the joint. <clears throat> One of the big thing that um, we need to talk about here for arthritis is de decreasing the joint loading, right? And this means education. This doesn't mean just mean in the clinic. We got to decrease that joint loading and educate them. Hey, maybe put a little or a, a sizable pillow on your chairs so that when you sit down, you don't have to sit down as far, right? There's less stress putting down on that. Maybe use a cane for a period of time to lighten that load on the affected limb. Um, really act, modify that activity, at least in the acute stage, and then we'll work on getting them back to function, right? Bring down that pain, improve the joint range of motion. Now we're getting into the functional phase, all right? We have to increase the strength of the surrounding muscles and take that load off the joint. Tasks like sit to stand, right? Low impact. Um, squats and stairs, all these things are really important to build that muscle strength and endurance. All right, so moving on from that, we have a somewhat similar approach to treatment, but we're going to get into the total hip arthroplasty or total hip replacement. All right, and there's two kinds of ways they fixate it. I know there's three different approaches to get to the replacement. So we know those, those are anterior, posterior, and lateral, right? And so there's mixes in between those, but those are the three main kind. But the way they fix those implants, there's two different ways. There's cemented and uncemented. Now I just want to give you guys um, the pros and cons kind of, of both. And real briefly, for cemented, what they're doing is they're taking that implant, putting it in there, and then putting this cement mixture in there to 
to keep that implant fixated, right? Now, great thing about this is you can have early full weight bearing after surgery. It's really quickly set, and that's awesome. You can get to work shorter recovery time. But the concern is they have seen instances where it loosens, that cement mixture loosens, and so that implant's kind of banging around in there. And that's not good if you, that's not good. So um, the other type of approach to fixate it is the uncemented approach where they have this almost serrated, but it's irregularly shaped implant um, and they'll put it in there and um, hope for bony union for that bone to fill in and to surround that implant. And it's typically pretty tightly pushed in there but they still let that bone form around and there's no cement to fixate it. So the pro with this is there's less of the loosening, right? So the implant doesn't loosen as often because you have this really strong bony union between the implant and the, the femur. The con to this is that there is a longer recovery period and they cannot put weight on it typically immediately after surgery. And I know you guys all know the hip precautions for the posterior hip approach, right? But do you know the anterior hip precautions? Because I didn't actually. When I started researching this, I was like, oh, I should probably know that for when I get into the clinic. So here it is. Here it is. Anterior hip precautions. No extension past neutral or external rotation, excessive external rotation, right? So if you think about this, this makes sense. If they are making an incision on the front and you have someone go into extension, what way is that, that femoral head being driven, right? It's going anterior if you're going into extension and that's not good. That could pop it out of socket. That could go through the incision. It could be a real mess. So it makes sense that that would be the precautions. And with a total hip replacement, you know, we always have risks of different things. And these are like the common three I always see um, is DVT, deep vein thrombosis, pneumonia, and infection, right? You're sitting around all the time on a bed. You're likely to get a DVT if you're not moving around, if you're not activating those muscles. Now, if you're having physical therapy, you should be safe, but you got to make sure that your patients know to keep on moving those ankles, keep on moving those limbs so that they don't get that deep vein thrombosis going on. Pneumonia from laying in bed is also a common risk and infection from the incision. Um, you got to watch out for all these things and monitor that. So treatment, let's get into treatment as a PTA. How are we going to treat someone following a total hip replacement? Well, we're going to work on strengthening those muscles, right? They just had muscles cut through, most likely. Um, they had a surgery, they're weak, they've been sitting down for a little while. They kind of have this, their body's trying to figure out what's going on, right? It just got cut into and now it's trying to heal and stabilize itself because it just had a bone drilled into it and a metal implant put there. So you got to understand that the body's kind of readjusting to everything and putting a lot of effort into healing. So you got to make sure your patient strengthens those muscles without breaking hip precautions. So you got to educate them, educate them, right? So much of it is education. The other thing that we'll need to be doing is 
preventing DVTs, um, the risks and et cetera, really making sure that they know those precautions and know the risks of pneumonia and DVTs. You got to do gait training. So getting them up onto a walker, right? And maybe working on ambulating a little bit, getting around the hospital. This is important just to get those muscles working in synergy and to um, get them back to function quicker. And then as they progress, you want to progress your exercises. You don't want to stay at the same place, right? So you work on reducing that pain, improving that range of motion and strength, doing those quad sets, right? Um, maybe heel slides or short arc quads, long arc quads, right? As long as you're not breaking those hip precautions. And then you're going to do stuff like uh, standing, marching, you know, mini squats, sit to stand, all these things that will help work those muscles in a functional way. And then you'll want to work on balance when you're getting more into the later phases, work on balance and closed chain exercises. This way you're preparing them for um, going out into the community and being at home. So here's what I'm trying to get across to you guys. Do you see the pattern? You got to, here's the pattern, right? You got basically three steps. Step one, reduce the pain and increase range of motion and start on strength, right? Start activating those muscles. Step one, that's step one. Step two, improve the strength through active range of motion and beginning those functional tasks very lightly, continue range of motion, right? So this is like the intermediate stage where you're trying to strengthen their body, but not push them too hard. And then once you're getting to the functional phase, what you're doing is you're strengthening those muscles real good with closed chain exercises and functional tasks. And then you're working on balance and adaptability. All right. So there we go. There we go. That was the total hip arthroplasty spiel that I had. Next on, we got labrum tears. We're just going through these conditions, right? We're just blowing through them. Labrum tear. What is it? Well, as we've talked before, that labrum is a ring around the acetabulum, right? And it is this kind of rubber-like, but it's a fibrocartilage makeup that provides this suction and this deepening of the socket to hold that femoral head in there. Now, if someone has a labrum tear, what will happen is that labrum will actually pull away from that edge of the acetabulum a little bit, or it'll um, get pushed away from it, you know? And so often they present with this like, catching or clicking, and that catching or clicking is from that labrum actually um, being torn a little bit, and then that femoral head rubbing it and kind of pushing up against it, almost like those... Uh... So... I don't know what happened, but my computer decided to stop recording. So I was talking to myself for a little bit there, kind of teaching myself. <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. This is a little uh, break in the episode, I guess. Maybe it was telling me I needed to stop talking so much. So back to what we were talking about, labrum tears, right? There's this clatching and kick, catching and clicking. Typically, you'll have this pain in the groin, um, and it'll be in the anterior, and they'll present with something called a C sign which is if you, uh, if you make the letter C with your hand, kind of like that cup form, typically a patient will be leaning um, kind of away from that hip or on that hip with their hand in that cup form right around their greater trochanter. And for some reason, patients do this when they have this um, labrum tear or pain. It's kind of like a stabilization, almost 
helps reduce the pain, it seems like. But they'll present with that C sign, right? Um, so what do we want to do if someone has a labrum tear? Because right, this is a this is a structural thing. How are we going to help with this? Well, we don't want to let it stiffen, right? We want to be doing passive range of mo motion, uh, joint mobs for increased range of motion. Uh, we basically want to optimize this. We want to help with muscle imbalances and pelvic position. Typically, patients who have labrum tears will present with a anteriorly rotated or tilted pelvis, which is interesting. And so what you want to do is avoid loading that pelvis and that joint, especially the hip joint, um, anteriorly during weight bearing or in rotation because of that labrum tear, right? You don't want that clicking or catching on that and then driving it in more. So that's a labrum tear. Moving on similarly, similar, similarly, is the femoral acetabular impingement, right? And I, I, I kind of knew what this was before, but I wasn't positive. So hopefully I can help. Maybe some of you were in the same position as me and didn't know much about it and would like some more clarity on it. The femoral acetabular impingement, this is where the neck of the femur or the labrum itself are too large or deformed, right? And just an irregular shape. So when this happens, what, what occurs is it rubs, catches, impinges, it presses on, all those words you can think of, right? It, it is too large. It's like trying to fit, um, it's like you have a table that's thin at the front and then gets bigger at the back, right? And you're trying to squeeze this through a door. Well, at first, when you get the first front of it in, it's okay because it's smaller in the front, but when you try to get the rest of it through, it catches and it bangs up the door frame, right? Because you're trying to push it through and it scratches and it, it uh, dents it, right? That's what's happened with this. Um, the neck of the femur is too large and it causes that damage to rub, press up against that acetabulum edge, right? Or that labrum. Um, or that labrum is too large and that neck of the femur bangs into it and it causes damage to the labrum. Either way, there's damage and it reduces the range of motion, right? And so you have those two ways, either the neck of the femur is too large or the labrum is too large, but it can also be mixed. It could be both. This is basically treated the same as a labrum tear. So if you see that happen, just know you're going to approach it very similarly as a labrum tear in treatment. Typically for that, patients will have surgery. Moving on to trochanteric bursitis or gluteal tendinopathy. Now, I looked into this, and it, the, the research was actually quite interesting. So, originally, people thought that this was a bursitis of the hip, right? And what they found is many studies have shown that patients who have um, so-called trochanteric bursitis present actually not with bursitis. They didn't have inflammation or enlargement of the bursa but they actually had gluteal tendinopathy, specifically at the medius insertion site. The gluteus medius and minimus insertion site on the hip is the main problem. There's a little bit of tendinopathy or irritation, tendinitis going on right there. So when these patients pre present, not to say that you can never have a bursitis at the hip, it's just that typically it results from 
um, a gluteal tendinopathy. So this is caused by compression, right? So there's these, these tendons insert, the gluteal tendon inserts right onto or below or near that greater trochanter. So if there's a lot of compression on that or friction or tension, you'll have to relieve that, right? The first step is always rest, recover, heal up from that inflammation and that um, overuse. So that the, you want to bring down that pain and you want to modify your activities. Think about what the gluteus medius does. It does hip abduction. And the way you can stretch that is by going into adduction, correct? So what we actually want to avoid is because of those tendons being irritated with that gluteal tendinopathy, you'll actually want to reduce those activities that stress those tendons, such as laying on your side on the hip that hurts. That is putting a compressive force on those tendons and further irritating them. Crossing your legs with your, let's say your right hip is the one that hurts you. If you have your left hip on the bottom and you cross your left leg over top, that is causing the stretching. Think of that um, the IT band um, and the TFL, how when you go into a little bit of uh, adduction, it actually stretches those structures because it goes across the hip and the trunk, right? Same thing happens with the glute med. Um, if you are crossing your legs and that is stretching that tendon and putting more um, stress and irritation on it. So after you've rested, brought down the pain, and you've modified your activities to a comfortable level, what you want to do is actually build that strength up. You know, do a lot of eccentrics, but don't do it so that you overuse it and hurt yourself. Do it in those motions and that uh, activity levels that are not painful. Build that strength up and get to a point where your threshold is further up. And particularly, you'll want to strengthen the glute med because with these studies that have been showing that it's typically a glute medius tendinopathy, most of the patients presented with glute med weakness, surprisingly, right? Crazy. So one of our main interventions will be to strengthen that glute med. All right, muscle strains. So I just took some main takeaways for you guys so I can uh, tell you these and hopefully you'll remember them. For the hamstrings, for muscle strains, typically a hamstring strain will happen either at toe off, right, when they're sprinting, toe off, or the late forward swing when their knee is high up in the air towards them. Um, that's typically when those strains will happen. These strains happen because you might have a weak glute max and your hamstrings are having to compensate and make up for the fact that you're the glute is weak and can't do any of that extension work. For the hip flexors, the iliopsoas, typically these strains occur when you are forced into extension while actively flexing. All right, let's say you are doing a squat and then someone kicks you in the butt really hard and it makes you 
jump forward and go straight legged. Maybe you get a, a muscle strain. I'm actually not sure. I couldn't really think of an example for that. Um, but typically that happens when you are forced into extension while actively flexing. Then adductors, typically you strain your adductors during sports. Now, how do we treat them? Well, this is a strain, right? It's a muscle injury. Depending on where it's at, if it's in the belly, it'll heal a lot faster because there's more blood flow. That's why it's red. If it's near closer to the tendon insertional site, then it'll take longer. But we treat them by doing ice or compression, right? Bring down that inflammation, help with blood flow, gentle range of motion and movement to get those muscles still moving and active, but you want to get them into a pain-free area, gentle, and then it needs the time to heal, right? Do isometrics to realign those fibers in the correct form as they're healing, as those new collagen fibers are coming. And then you'll want to progress, you know, to more dynamic functional stabilizing exercises and then fix the muscle imbalances that maybe caused the strain in the first place. All right, then we got the IT band syndrome overuse, right? Overuse is the main reason that this occurs, IT band syndrome, because you're using it so much, it gets irritated and those muscles attached to it um, get inflamed. So the, the simple fix for this is to stop using it as much, modify your activities. And then you can also foam roll and stretch those muscles that directly attach the IT band, but don't foam roll the IT band because you can't really do that. And we've learned that, right? The other thing to do is strengthen the glute med. I feel like we've been saying that a lot, strengthen the glute med. Maybe we all should just strengthen our glute med because it seems like that's very necessary for all of these conditions. Um, why do we want to strengthen our glute med for the IT band syndrome? Well, the reason you'll want to do that is because the glute med pulls you into abduction. And the reason you have the syndrome quite possibly is because you are either um, being put in a position of valgus where that IT band is being stretched out and those muscles attached to it are being stretched and put on uh, tension. So you have to bring that back into abduction and strengthen that glute med to prevent that leg, that hip from going into knee valgus or uh, adduction. All right, guys, we're on the last stretch. Literally, this is the last page I have written. Thanks for sticking around for so long. Let's finish this up. Let's get this done. We have the leg cow. Uh, we're going to move on to the, um, the adolescent typical hip pathologies. And there's two of them that we'll talk about. First, we have the slipped capital femoral epiphysis. And I believe they call it skiffy because of the abbreviation, right? Now, what is this? Well, basically what this is, is you have that femoral head, that round ball, and the growth plate. And what happens is that that femoral head, that round ball slips from the growth plate um, downward most likely, um, and the, the, the femur kind of drives upward. And so you have the slip capital femoral epiphysis, which is not good because this happens in adolescence because of that growth plate not being entirely secure. And the way it presents is typically the, the patient um, will have limping 
it'll hurt. It'll be painful. Um, and it'll be painful from the hip to the knee. They'll present with pain in their anterior groin and to their knee. Typically, males are the ones affected by this. I think they're three times as likely. And their leg will typically be in external rotation. And it will hurt to go into internal rotation. That's the slip capital femoral epiphysis. Typically presents with adolescent males. Now moving on, we got the leg calf perthes disease. I don't know if I said that right, but look it up. This is, it's, it's basically another form. It's, this isn't exactly what it is, but it's kind of like an arthritis. So um, what, what will happen is you have the head of the femur, and this also happens in adolescence. Boys are also more likely. It's between the four and eight-year-old range, typically six-year-olds. Um, they'll present with limping and groin pain, just like the slip capital femoral epiphysis. So you kind of have to differentiate between the two. But what the leg calves perthes disease is this osteonecrosis of the femoral head. And so that femoral head is actually degenerating and being destroyed and dying off. That's what necrosis means is the cell death, right? And so it's dying and it's flattening. And because it flattens, there's, there's a lot of pain um, and they'll be limping. It's very similar to, thigh, uh, to arthritis, like I said. And they'll also present with thigh and knee pain with internal rotation as well. So slip capital femoral epiphysis and leg calf perthes disease present very similarly, but they are very different. The slip capital femoral epiphysis is the growth plate and the head slipping, right? There's a slippage off of that. Whereas the leg calf perthes disease is an osteonecrosis of the femoral head, right? Um, treatment, well, a lot of times this has to be surgery. They have braces for um, the legs, cavities, perthes disease. But for us, what we need to do is keep that head of the femur in the acetabulum for the legs, calves, perthes disease. You want to keep it in that closed packed position, which is internal rotation and abduction, right? And a little bit of extension. And you want to rest it because you don't want a lot of trauma and damage going to that head and flattening it out more. And then, of course, range of motion to make sure they, they can keep that up. So that is the end of the episode, guys. Thanks for sticking around. I know it was a long one. Don't blame me if you didn't listen all the way through. I appreciate your time. And I will be submitting more episodes for you guys so you can continue your studies and crush it on the exam. I hope all the best for you guys. Thank you for listening as always. I hope you have gained value from this episode. Assistant to the Physical Therapist podcast was created to help students learn. But learning requires work. I hope you tune in next time. But until then, stay tough yet tender. Like steak.